good morning. If I haven't met you before, my name is Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here as well, and we are glad that you are with us today. Uh, This morning is kind of a unique forum, uh, and we are beginning a new teaching series here that's entitled Faithful Presence. And the purpose and the focus of this teaching series is going to be on what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be Christians who are called to be Christ's witnesses here in Austin in the year 2017? That is our calling. Jesus says, you will go and be my witnesses. And yet most of us, when we hear that, what we are filled with is a strong sense of what we don't want to be like as witnesses and why that shouldn't apply to us. And so you hear things, people going, well, I don't want to be one of those kinds of Christians that's really divisive, right? We're clear about what we don't want to be uh, as missional people, as God-sent people, than what we do want to be. Um, That translates to church for a lot of people, right? A lot of people are clear about what they don't want the church to become than what they do want the church to become, right? Don't want to become too liberal. Don't want to become too sold out on that stuff. Don't want to be too conservative and then kind of irrelevant in the cultural conversations. Don't want us to become too contemporary and kind of lose our roots in who we are. Don't want to become too traditional and stay stuck and not changing and obsolete. All of those viewpoints have validity, but the fact is in your life, in your family, or in our church, you don't have a future by knowing what you don't want to be, right? A vision for our lives has to be pursuing something that we have identified, pursuing what we're going after, not what we're trying to avoid. That's the purpose of this series. And to to get into this idea of what does it mean to be an effective uh, and, and fulfilled Christian in a city like Austin in 2017, we are going to base this series, Faithful Presence, around the book of Daniel specifically the first three chapters of the book of Daniel. And I want to give you um, a a quick reading of chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, and then we're going to just give a little summary before we move forward. So we're going to bring the scripture up here. This is from Daniel chapter 2, verses 46 through 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, worshipped Daniel, and commanded that a grain offering and incense be offered to him. The king said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. What's happening here, what's taking place in the book of Daniel is that Daniel is Jewish, and he is from Israel. It's where he was born, about 600 years before Jesus. But what happens when Daniel's very young is that the empire of Babylon comes in and conquers the nation of Israel. And what they do in conquering is they take some of the leaders of the Jewish society at the time from Israel and force them to go back to Babylon to work for King Nebuchadnezzar, and to work for the flourishing of the Babylonian Empire. Daniel is one of these people, forcibly removed from his home and forced to go work in Babylon. What's fascinating about Daniel is how he conducts himself, as we see here. 
On the one hand, Daniel doesn't do what sometimes as Christians we think about, which is, well, this is not a godly empire, and so therefore I won't have anything to do with it. There are some Christians that the idea of kind of separating from the world so is that we only work for the things of God, he doesn't do that. He becomes not only a great advisor to Nebuchadnezzar, but as we see here, he becomes the chief advisor in the court of Babylon. But at the same time, he also doesn't abandon his faith and his religion. He maintains very distinct spiritual practice as a follower of Yahweh, and then he uses his influence in the Babylonian courts to shape and form the Babylonian empire. The Babylonian empire starts to take on more of the characteristics of the kingdom of God because Daniel leverages his power to mold and shape it. And that is going to be what we are going to be talking about in this series, is what does that look like for us? Now, today we're going to try to take an illustration that's not just 2,600 years ago of someone doing it, but we're going to have a, a dialogue sermon today to get into this with an individual who is trying, like many of us are, to figure out how do we do that? How are we that kind of faithful presence in our day and age today? It's my uh, pleasure to, to uh, have a friend of mine here, uh, Ross Baird, someone that I have known for many years. Ross is the founder and president of Village Capital, a group he started in 2009. Ross and his wife Jen and their three-month-old Jack are here. I think Jen and uh, Jack are in this service uh, somewhere, uh, are, um, live in Washington, D.C., um, Village Capital, over the last, since 2009, has invested over $18 million in helping over 70 companies get started both in the United States and around the world. And Ross has um, been a leader in that. He has just released a book, just published a book. It's called The Innovation Blind Spot. Talks about some of the more of the work of Village Capital and the work that he does. Uh, there are some copies of it that are outside at the reception desk. Maureen uh, has been selling copies today. Apparently, we're just about out of copies. Uh, Ross graciously waived any profits that were sold here at Covenant, and Covenant obviously isn't making any profit off of it. So the books are much cheaper here than, but you can get them on Amazon. They're in Barnes and Noble, um, and is selling quite well. Uh, if you would like a copy of the book after this to learn more about what's taking place in, in this work, uh, if the books have already sold out, Maureen can take your name down and we can work out getting more copies uh, here to Covenant um, at, at, at this deal. Ross also speaks around the world to different groups. Uh, he's spoken, for example, even here in Austin the last few years at South by Southwest talking about Village Capital and what they do. He's in town because on Friday he was invited by Michael Dell and the Dell Foundation to come and to be the keynote speaker at a gathering, an all-day gathering, talking about the issues of income inequality in the city of Austin and what can be done about the growing and enormous gap between the wealthy and the poor. Mayor Steve Adler was there for the day. Ross got to speak, but also to lead breakout sessions. And, um, and it's exciting to see the work he's doing. But what he doesn't often get to do is to share in a forum like this in a church. This is a little bit different. But what Ross doesn't um, necessarily talk about in all of those forums, or he doesn't have the chance to talk about, is that everything that he does, everything that he's built in Village Capital, how they operate, and why people are paying attention to it, is born out of a very deep faith, 
faith as a follower of Jesus, where he has sought, like Daniel, to ask the question of what would it mean in areas of life that we don't often think of together, capitalism, finance, the economy, and Christianity, and rather than living in separate worlds with that, trying to blend them together in a way where our communities flourish, but the values of the kingdom of God are built up here and now. That's what we're going to get a chance to talk about a little bit today. So will you join me in welcoming Ross Baird, who's with us today. It's good to see you. It's great to be here. Um, Just so everybody gets a little bit of background on you as we're talking and starting this Faithful Presence series, tell us a little bit about your growing up, just a little bit about your faith journey uh, and how you were shaped and formed um, as, a, as a follower of Jesus. Yeah, I, I first of all appreciate the invitation to a, a, such an amazing community as Covenant. Um, I grew up in Atlanta like you did, Thomas, and I went to a church that uh, trained Presbyterians, and it was actually very similar to Covenant. I think a lot of churches are either um, probably would get oversimplified as conservative, you know, very, very strong on teaching and doctrine and worship, but the community is this kind of other thing that doesn't really matter to what we do in our our Sunday worship lives. And a lot of churches, um, probably oversimplified as liberal, are very in the community doing really, really wonderful things, but when it comes to faith and doctrine and the gospel, like, well, you know, actually it's okay. Everyone can believe what they can. You know, we just don't want you to go away and get weirded out when we talk about God just like we'll we'll say what it we'll say what we need to say to get you to stay here and and I think that both of those are really important. I think in a lot of churches there are no liberals and in a lot of churches there are no conservatives and that's really bad for that kind of separation is really bad for the social fabric of our society as you can see in the news each day. And I grew I was really fortunate to grow up in a church that was um in many ways very traditional uh and had very strong teaching and preaching and and taught me the gospel really well and in many ways very in the community. Uh, so I just came from Seattle, and the last time I was in Seattle, I was in high school. Um, my church had a relationship with the Presbyterian Church in probably the worst neighborhood in Seattle, and they ran a homeless ministry out of the basement, and I spent summer vacations through my church. We had a wonderful youth program, um, sleeping on cots and serving the homeless. And so I think, I think holding in tension what it means to be both serious about how you understand God and serious about what that means every day is, is, is the background I grew up in. It's actually an, a, something you do amazingly well here. Okay, so 2009, you start Village Capital. And tell us a little bit about what Village Capital is and kind of the unique thing that you had a vision for doing that y'all are, y'all are seeking to do every day. So over simple, we are an investment firm. We raise money from people and we invest it in companies and the aim is to make more money than we invest. Um, we are invested in a company, we just invested last week in a company in Austin. We're actually invested in more companies in Austin than any other city. Um, and the company is called Upswing. And Upswing is an ama- I don't know if you've ever heard of it, it's an amazing firm. And what they do is they focus on college students who are from the bottom income quartile. If you are in the top income quartile, um, and you send your kids to college, they have a 74% chance of graduating in four years. If you're from the bottom income quartile and you go to college, you have a 4% chance of graduating in four years. Um, 
we have an incredibly divided society and higher education makes it even more divided. So Upswing actually gathers data about students, things you might not think about, like how quickly they respond to emails, for example, or what their extracurriculars are, or different things. And they can actually predict and outline and intervene which students are on the fringe and maybe struggling, which students are doing well, and help, help universities intervene and help these students, you know, help the 4% become 24, 34, 44, 74%. And, um, might sound like, in, in a traditional mindset, an awesome nonprofit, but they're a company. People like UT Austin pay them a subscription fee to use the service. It's a technology. They employ, you know, 20-ish people here in Austin. They've raised a couple million dollars from people, including us. Uh, they're making about 100000 in revenue a month. They're a good business. And this idea of a business that is a good, profitable, sustainable business that also has a higher mission, um, we've invested in... 70 companies like that and helped hundreds more get off the ground. That's, that's kind of what we do. So in essence, you're both trying in kind of a multi-bottom line to both make a profit, but there are certain kind of businesses that you look to invest in that need to have a very distinct impact on the community around it. Yeah, I mean, and I would say every business we invest in needs to have a very clear case to how it could be a successful business and also a very clear mission that, that fits the values of what we want to see in the world. So if you, Thomas, came to me and said, hey, I have an amazing idea. I, I actually, yeah. I have several amazing ideas a day. I don't know if you know that, but it's one I of my gifts. I am going to help uh, the average young professional at Covenant, people like you, Ross, get your food delivered an hour faster. And I think we can make a killing. I would say, well... You know, on the scale of problems that we have in the world, helping people like me get my food delivered more convenient could be incredibly profitable. I might pay a lot, but that is not necessarily aligned with, given limited time and money, the kinds of problems that I think we as a society need to solve. So I'd say that that is an example of a business that wouldn't necessarily fit the mission of what we're investing, even though it could be very, very successful. So when I first met Ross, one of the things that was fascinating is he was talking about this idea of village capital, and I found it confusing. Because it's like, are you helping nonprofits start, uh, or you're helping businesses start, and which is it? Because you got to pick one of those. Uh, and and I wasn't the only one who found this idea confusing. But how yeah, do you? Yeah. yeah. How do you explain that and think about that yourself? Well, very tactical example. So there was when I was starting this, there was a guy who went to our church in Atlanta. Uh, I attended Thomas's church, Kairos, in Atlanta. was a member there. So if you don't like what I say, you can blame it to poor pastoring uh, at some point <laughs> in, in my history. Um, if you love what I say, it's all Thomas. Um, how, how about that? And uh, the, I don't have that much confidence <laughs> in you. So you made a big bet here. Um, so there was another uh, gentleman who went to our church, very, very successful entrepreneur, amazing philanthropist, done a lot of good for the community. And I went and I pitched him and I described the mission and I described probably another business like Upswing that was for profit and also had a core, core social value and said, I'm going to invest in a lot of businesses like these. Would you invest in this, this idea I have? And he said, uh, you know, this seems like a very interesting idea, but look, I've got two pockets with one pocket. Uh, I run my company, very successful company. I make as much money as I can. When I take care of my family and uh, all that is settled, I put whatever is left over into my other pocket and we give it all away. And this guy has been an amazingly generous philanthropist. And 
He says, I just don't understand which pocket you're asking me for. And I think that to take a step back in society, we, we are very much a two pocket society and that's, that's a problem. And it's a problem because we are wildly out of balance. So if you add up all of the value of all the public companies in the world from Amazon to ExxonMobil to everyone in between, it's $220 trillion each year is invested in the stock market. If you add up all the value of all of the charitable foundations in the world from Gates to Dell to your weekly giving to Covenant, it's about a trillion dollars. So what that means is for every dollar that we put in the do-gooder pocket, there are about $220 that are put into the business pocket. And yet we treat them, we treat them as equivalent. And this has devastating consequences sometimes. So I know our hearts and our prayers are with really horrible things happening in Puerto Rico. Um, Puerto Rico to me is an extension of, of two-pocket thinking at its worst. So we had the global financial crisis, 2009. Puerto Rico uh, was basically bankrupt. And a bunch of people went in and refinanced it. And they took, they took a real two-pocket approach. They said, okay, here we are. We've got to refinance it. How can we refinance the island and make as much money as possible? So they said there are certain things like hotels and beaches that we're going to put a ton of money into. And there are certain things like uh, water and roads that are... You know, we, there are these bonds that have been paying them off, but that's less important. And so infrastructure got kind of gutted and the tourism industry got massive investment. Flash forward to this, you know, flash forward to this hurricane, people do not have power. People do not have water. Vehicles that have supplies cannot get from the ports to homes because the roads are in such disrepair. And people now are giving lots and lots of philanthropy to Puerto Rico, and they should. You know, my wife and I gave last night, but it is a drop in the bucket compared to the devastation that happened as a result of this two-pocket thing. The island's fundamentally unable to take care of itself because how can this island be a sustainable community that can provide for itself was not part of the investment decisions that made after the global financial crisis. So give me an example of that in that idea of two-pocket thinking, and this idea that's a, of... That's a sad example. No, so, yeah. yeah, so so what would be an example of what something different looks like? Are there examples of one-pocket thinking? Yeah, so hurricane relief. I mean, I know that the church, the covenant, did really, really wonderful things in the wake of Harvey. I was, I was blown away by the amount of money that you raised. A friend of mine in Houston, we do a lot of work in Houston as well, um, has been involved in the entrepreneurial community in Houston for a while. A few years ago, he took me on a tour of businesses in and around the Buffalo Bayou, which has been in the news and many of you may well have been to. Um, there was one business uh, it run by an African-American entrepreneur, employees, about 100 people making good wage, kind of an advanced manufacturing business. Um, this business and many others like it in, in some of the poorer parts of Houston were completely wiped out by the storm. He started this nonprofit called Entrepreneurs for Houston. Um, and we did a book event here in Austin on Friday and we gave all the proceeds to this nonprofit. But instead of um, delivering aid to people in Houston, which is really important and part of the puzzle, they're actually investing in businesses like this business in the Buffalo Bayou. And his point of view is, you know, aid is great and it helps in the short term and we really need it. But if 
Houston and the hard hit parts of Houston are going to come back, it's not going to be because we got a lot of philanthropy in October 2017. It's going to be because there are businesses like this one that have 100 people all making living wage jobs, all generating income, giving to their churches, sending their kids to school, investing in the community. Over the long term, it's a very different way of thinking about hurricane relief. And it's, and it's a way that I think integrates business and society in a way that, that, that I think needs to happen much more frequently. So the idea that kind of when the spotlight or the news cycle moves on, you've actually built in a kind of infrastructure for the long-term success and sustainability of a community rather than just hitting the short-term needs, which are important, and then we move on to just the next short-term need that happens somewhere. So... Uh, how does that apply to you? Because, because one of the things that, that happens, and, and this is a legitimate thing, is that anytime someone like me talks about the idea of, of living out your faith uh, wherever you live, work, and play, uh, a legitimate comeback that someone could have is like, well, that's easy for you to say as a pastor, right? You, you don't, you're not in the real world. You don't know how it works out there. You don't know the constraints that are under, and so um, it forces us, in a sense, to say that the real world works with this two-pocket thinking, this idea of compartmentalizing our life from work to school to faith to family. You have talking about trying to blend those. You're talking about blurring those lines. What is it like for you to have started an investment fund with one-pocket thinking? What are the challenges of that for you personally and as a, as a business uh, leader? But also, what have you learned? I mean, have you, do you think you've been formed as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, by seeking to do this and to live this out? What's that been like for you? Yeah, I mean, trying to build a one-pocket firm is certainly emotionally, physically, mentally, the most challenging thing I've ever done. And it's been challenging at a spiritual level. Um, I think in, you know, in our day jobs, oh, I, would, I would not call Village Capital like, and I do not publicly call it like a Jesus fund. I think people would, in the investment world think that was very weird if I did. Um, but there are principles that we aspire to that are very much formed by my face. And, and that's actually really difficult. It's much harder to run a company if you care a lot about positive and negative externalities. So tactical example, we had a team member, um, she uh, pointed out to me, this a couple years ago, our intern program. Basically every startup and every investment fund I know is incredibly subsidized by an intern industrial complex. You have um, MBA students at UT Austin who will work for free for any startup, any venture capital, anything that remotely sounds cool. And we were for a long time. We had a revolving door of very smart, free people. It was like, oh, it's great. You'll get a good experience. And my uh, colleague, she was first in her family to go to college. She grew up in and out of foster care. And she said, when I was in college, I would have killed to work at a firm like this. But all the unpaid internships were not accessible to me because my family didn't have money. And I couldn't. So I ended up working at, you know, like Arby's in Berkeley, California, instead of at a firm like this. And I just think if we want to live out our values, we need to pay our interns. Working here needs to be accessible to everybody. And so 20 interns who are paid are a lot more expensive than 20 interns who are unpaid. And it, in, you know, it introduces complications into running the business. But it's, it's 
worth it to to do the right thing in the long term. I think at uh, you know at another level, what's really challenging is I have a lot of friends who are very two-pocket and they do wonderful things on the weekends and do wonderful things in their volunteering time, but don't really care that much about their job except for the paycheck it provides them. And it's it's much harder to maintain balance between work and home life and family life when you do care about what you're doing. It's much more rewarding, but it's much harder. So like, I care sometimes way too much about what we're doing because my values and what I really care about are integrated into it. I never, I never don't care about what I'm doing, which means hard days are harder to switch off. I think, I think the flip side, so that's what's challenging. It's, it's, it's harder probably to be happy on a day-to-day -day basis. It's a lot easier to find joy in the biblical sense because I, I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I think what on the flip side, what is what the biggest opportunity is, is it gives me a chance to take a step back and reflect on how, how we are called to live out the gospel and what we do. So I'm in the investment world, and in the investment world, actually in, all, in the whole world, in politics too and everything, money is power. And we do a very unusual thing at my firm, Village Capital, the way we make investment decisions, I don't actually decide. My partners don't decide. We actually bring together groups of entrepreneurs and the entrepreneurs themselves decide where our funds go. And that was a very intentional choice because I've seen the hugely corrosive aspect that concentrated power has in our, our country. Just to give a couple of examples, 80% um, yep. of startup investment uh, goes to three geographic areas of the country, New York, Boston, San Francisco. Um, we have a few cities in this country, Austin is one of them, they're doing very well, um, and even parts of all those cities are not doing very well and it's just getting worse. Um, and I think it's because power is pretty concentrated. Um, you might have seen in the technology world where I work in, there have been some pretty high profile sexual harassment cases. Less than 5% of investment goes to women. Um, less than 1% of investment in new ideas in the US go to African Americans and Latinos. So we have massively concentrated power. Um, but if you're in the business world, if you're in a two-pocket world and you have a lot of power and a lot of influence, it's like, how do I get more? If you think about it biblically, the thing that scripture teaches us is concentrated power is incredibly corrosive and destructive. Actually, intentionally giving up power and handing it over to other people makes you and everyone more powerful. And so when I talk to people who run investment firms, they're like, well, why do you let other people decide where your money goes? And there's a, there's a biblical scriptural framework of giving up power actually, actually gets us towards the society we need. So as an example, and we're just one small fund, um, about 90% of our investments go to places outside the three cities that I mentioned, much more democratic. About 45% of our investments go to women. About 25% of our investments go to people of color. And it's, it's a structural power dynamic shifts that shift that I think gives you much, much better results. And so that's just one example within one investment firm, but um, I, can, I can talk about more. Yeah, so, so in essence, it's, it's, it's not that y'all set out to say, we want to invest more in the middle of the country. We want to invest more in women or people of color. You didn't start with that, but what you did is you started with biblical principles of power and money and influence and how it works, and the net result of that is a flattening 
and an empowerment of people who often aren't. Not because you started with an idea of like inclusivity necessarily, but you started with an idea of biblical principles, applied it in a way that people don't, and it's become a huge, hugely um, welcoming opportunity for people that wouldn't have a chance. I think that's fair. The point that we wanted to make today, and as we start into this series, is that I hope that none of you walk away from here and the only thought in your head is, there was this guy who showed up at Covenant one Sunday doing this really interesting thing. That would not, that would not make a, that's not going to be enough. What the point of today in this series is going to be is asking the question, what would it mean if we actually took seriously the call to follow Jesus where we live, work, and play? Ross is, is a wonderful guy, and he's a very uh, intelligent guy, but what I think Ross did was not something other people couldn't figure out. It's just most people don't because they don't take the time to think about the deeper questions of what would it really mean to integrate this? Whether I'm an attorney or a stay-at-home dad or a teacher or someone volunteering on the PTA, that's what Daniel did. Daniel moved into positions but always sought in those positions of influence, no matter how big or how small the, the circle of influence was, to integrate kingdom values into that place and not live a two-pocket life. This is my faith life. This is my work life. That is messy work. That's complex work. It's complicated work, as you're hearing about. But it is the call. It is what faithful presence is built upon, is an intentional blurring of those lines so that we live a holistic existence. That's what we're hoping today and in this, is that this is just spreading seeds in your own life, asking the question, what, would that, what could that even look like for me? I want to, before you go, I want to ask you one, one other question. Um, and I told Ross this was the part I was excited about because I was going to, I told him I was going to ask this, and he thinks at a level, in a way, in a scope that I don't. So I was excited to be pushed by the answer to it, which I have been today. But as an entrepreneur, as someone who seeks to call others to this one-pocket thinking based on kingdom values, you were here in Austin talking to the Dell Foundation, to others, to Mayor Adler about what the issues of this city are and what we can do about them. And you don't live in Austin, but sometimes that's actually good to have the perspective of an outsider in that. As you are thinking about all, the, all that stuff and you're here for that, what do you think it means for a church in a city like Austin in 2017 to seek to be faithful and to have a faithful presence, maybe in ways that we haven't considered, whether because of two-pocket thinking on our own part or anything else? How, wh what would that look like for you? Yeah, I, I, I think there are two answers to that. I think there's an individual level and there's a community level. I think at the individual level, um, we all compartmentalize different parts of our life. And, you know, for example, with a three-month-old baby, um, my answer to things aren't going as well as I hope they are in the business or we're not growing as fast has been, well, I'll just work twice as hard. With a three-month-old baby, that can't be the answer for me anymore. So I have to rebalance and integrate the kind of dad I want to be with the kind of business I want to run. And that's, that's, 
That's how I'm thinking about it in my life right now. How you might be thinking about it, and I see a lot of this where, let's say I'm a partner in a law firm. I say I want to have a more faithful presence at work. 99% of the time what people I see do is, oh, I'll start a Bible study for the believers who are in the law firm and then maybe invite new people. And that's wonderful. If it brings you joy and value, don't stop doing that. Um, but if I'm a lawyer in a law firm, a one-pocket thing would be like, how do, how do we think about our internship program? How do we think about who we hire so we're not just hiring people who look like Ross from the best law schools? How do we think about the cases that we take? You I mean, we need lawyers to think about justice in an intentional and transformative way. How do they know the cases we don't take, even though they're going to make us a lot of money? Um, if I'm a stay-at-home parent or if I'm a, if, I'm a, you know, if I'm a pastor, it's almost the opposite of the lawyer example. Pastors, and this is, I'm going to segue to what I think covenant can do in the community. Typically, pastors and churches say, well, you know, the, the, the economy will take care of itself and we'll just be the refuge for people on Sundays, but send them back out in the world. But... Um, at the Dell Foundation, we had this day-long design session, and the Dell Foundation said, um, let's imagine we had a bunch of money to invest in Austin. Let's just hypothetically. Hypothetically, the yeah. Dell has money. Yeah. yeah. The, yeah. It's, a, it's a hard thing to imagine. Crazy but design let's, experiment. Let's go there if possible. Um, what, what would you do? And uh, Mayor Adler was one of the participants, and he said, you know, I think that dramatically accelerating inequality in Austin is a massive problem. It's a massive problem for a number of reasons. You know, obviously the gap between rich and poor is a problem, but also he's like, our artists and our singers live in affordable houses. And San Francisco over the last 20 years has gone from a net producer of art for the world to a net consumer of art. And I am desperately afraid that that will happen to Austin and we've got to do something about it. So he said, I looked at 42, you know, I looked up and I found 42,000 housing units in Austin that are in danger of being bought and redeveloped and made unaffordable to people who currently lived in them. And I, and I looked and I found, you know, it would cost $5 billion to buy them and operate them as a landlord and keep them affordable. And I figured that fine taxpayers of Austin would probably not go for that $5 billion housing bond. Um, but maybe that's something that the private sector could care about. And I was thinking, there's a um, close friend of mine who Thomas has met, who's a pastor at a church in Louisville. Um, Louisville is a city like Austin that's dealing with similar gentrification issues. This church actually did that. They bought housing units in a part of the city um, and operates them as a landlord and keeps them affordable. There's a chapter, entire chapter I write in the book that you can read, or actually the 11 o'clock service might be more audible uh, than reading. Uh, it's like a generational thing, but... Um, the joke didn't quite land like I was hoping. No, it, was, uh, it was good. Yeah. It's just I'm on the other side oh, okay. of it, so I don't find it oh, funny. Yeah. But go ahead. <laughs> Young people like listening to books, Thomas. It's a good thing. Um, so uh, there's a whole chapter about how this church uh, pastor said, well, we should buy a house. And they, and they ran a ministry where they took people out of the sex trafficking industry and got them jobs and said, well, maybe they could live in the house and pay us a fair rent. And they built essentially, and this guy actually left the church and now runs a nonprofit that's an investment fund that invests in housing and jobs. And I think of all the money you guys are doing to support refugees here. It's wonderful work. Um, imagine if, I, I mean, I don't know, but other churches are investing in and operating housing units in other areas. And I'm not saying that's the answer for Austin. I don't live here and I don't know what the answer is. You guys know what the answer is, but I think you should dramatically expand the option set beyond what most churches do, which is we have a mission budget and we give to nonprofits and that's, that's all we do. You have an amazing opportunity.
Thank you, I think. Someone's going to be like, hey, I want to go buy a bunch of units. And Thomas, can you pass the, the hat next week? And you're going to say, I'm sorry, I brought Ross down And I'm going to defriend you on Facebook yep. at that point. <laughs> um, but it is exciting. And that's the challenge, not just to, but to us, to me, of what happens when you start thinking in these different kinds of ways. If we really want to have an impact and for the kingdom and what we're called to do. Uh, would you join me in thanking Ross for being with us today? Thank you very much. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks as we kick this series off for the witness of Daniel, who I think in a sense kind of had a one-pocket mentality, sought to follow you wherever he lived, worked, and played, and to live an integrated life. And I thank you for Ross and his seeking to do the same, and pray that you would continue to bless him in Village Capital in building up the things of the kingdom that our cities that our nation, that our world truly need for all people to thrive. I pray that you would help all of us individually and us as a church to think creatively about the fullness of our call and the opportunities before us that our two-pocket way of living just has never allowed us to even consider before. May we lean in towards both the challenges and the excitement of what this call towards a faithful presence in Austin might look like. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.